Well, uh, I invite you to take a copy of the Bible, and uh, we're stepping away from our series in 1 Peter just for this week, and uh, turning to the Gospel of John. So please turn to John chapter 17, and we're going to focus on one verse in John 17, verse 24. This passage is often referred to as the high priestly prayer, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we're going to look at the final petition, the last request that Jesus makes in this prayer, which I think we'll see is really the the request or the petition that orders and organizes all of the rest. It really governs the whole of this prayer that we have in John 17. So take a look at it with me, John 17, verse 24. Let's hear God's word. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 4, verse 6, says that there are many who ask, Who will show us some good? And I don't know about you, but I think it's right to say in these last 18 months or so, we have witnessed the destruction of many goods, many temporary goods. We've seen the destruction of what we might call physical good. Something like 600,000 lives lost in the United States alone. Um, Something like 5 million lives lost, all related to COVID worldwide. And as a result of that, we've seen not only the loss of physical good, we've, we've seen the destruction of social goods, haven't we? We've all got our own stories of missed opportunities to be with family, friends, and people we love. We've all got stories of of missing out on family gatherings, church gatherings, celebrations, graduations, weddings, and in some cases, sadly, even funerals. And in the midst of all of that, we've, we've also seen a great deal of societal unrest and injustice throughout our land. And we've also seen in the midst of that a great deal of political turmoil. And it feels as though the world that as we once knew it will no longer be the same once again. And so maybe we find ourselves asking with the psalmist, who will show us any good? And the psalmist's response to that question, it is, it's so fascinating And important for us to to realize because the psalmist asks the question, who will show us any good? And then he turns to ask something of the Lord. And he says, Lord, let the light of your face shine upon us. So the good he desires, we might say, is the light of God's face. And with that in mind, I want to reflect this morning on Jesus' prayer And John 17, focusing on verse 24. And we need to understand that this is Jesus' supreme desire for us. 
that we would be with him where he is and that we would see him and that we would see his glory, that glory that is his as the eternally beloved son of the father. And this is Jesus' supreme desire for us because he is our supreme good so that in seeing him, in beholding his glory, we are fully and finally satisfied in him. And so in the midst of the loss of temporary goods, in the midst of our own unique troubles and challenges in life, and in the midst of a society that is immersed in turmoil right now, I want to point us this morning to the greatest good, even the supreme good, which is the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want us to appreciate more deeply this morning that this is his great desire for us, brothers and sisters, that we would be with him to see him and to behold his glory as the Son of God eternally loved by the Father. You know, whenever a, whenever a ship was lost at sea in, in the dark of, of night, now this is before navigation systems and all of that, but, but those who were seeking to direct the course of the ship, what did they do to stay on course? Well, they, they looked up, right? They looked up to the, the, to the North Star to figure out where they needed to go. And when we, when we look around us and, and perhaps in our own personal lives are led to ask this question of the psalmist, who will show us any good? Here in John 17, verse 24, we are being directed to look up to the one whose heart is devoted to our good, whose heart desires our supreme good. So when we've lost reason to hope in life, in any temporary good, we can turn to him and the supreme good that he wills for us. As we begin to make sense of, of this verse in the broader context of John 17, we need to notice up front that, that uh, the request here in verse 24 is really the, the climax, the climatic petition of John 17 in a series of petitions, a series of requests that Jesus has made. He has prayed that having finished the work that his father sent him to do, that the father would now glorify him. He has prayed that the father will keep these disciples whom, who have come to understand that he was sent by the father. He has prayed that the father would sanctify them and equip them for the mission that he has given them to carry out. He's prayed for those who will come to believe through these disciples that they too would be one just as he and the Father are one. And he's prayed for a watching world that they would see the church and in seeing the church love one another, seeing the fellowship of believers, the love of God's people for one another, they would see that God the Father has loved them with the very same love that he's loved his one and only Son. And the world would know that Jesus Christ has come into the world from the Father. All of these petitions are a part of what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. But what I want you to appreciate this morning 
is that all of these petitions are ordered by this final petition. Verse 24 really is the highest organizing petition of this entire prayer. All other petitions, all other requests that Jesus makes here are with a view to this petition. Jesus prays that people would come to believe that he was sent by the Father. He he prays that they would be sanctified in the truth, that they would be kept to the very end so that they might be with him where he is and see him in his glory. That this is the, the ordering petition of the entire prayer, I think also comes out clearly in the vocabulary. If you read through the prayer, there's a shift in the vocabulary Jesus uses. Up to this point, Jesus has been saying, I ask you, Father, I ask you, Father, I ask you, Father. And notice now, Jesus expresses, he reveals what is the deep underlying desire motivating all of those requests. He says, Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am, those whom you have given me, that they may see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, friends, all that Jesus has done for us, all that Jesus wants to do in us and through us, through the mission of the church, is ultimately ordered by this singular desire of Jesus Christ, that he might give himself to us and that we might be fully satisfied in him. And so, you see, I want us this morning to to just dwell on this verse and meditate really on the supreme desire that Jesus has for his people, a desire he has for us even when we may find ourselves in a place right now where we are asking Who will show us any good? Is there any good left for us? And I want us to see first that Jesus' Jesus' desire above all is that we would see him and in seeing him be satisfied in him. And then secondly, I want us to think about what he wants us to see in him, namely his glory, his eternal glory as the Son, eternally loved by the Father. Okay, so let's take the first thing here. That Jesus' supreme desire is that we would see him and in seeing him be satisfied by him. And this is, this is a remarkable request when you think about it. It's a remarkable request in the context of John's gospel. Back in chapter 1, uh, John tells us that no one has ever seen God in verse 18. Now, that statement, John is intentionally echoing Exodus chapter 33, verses 33 and 34. Now, the context there is Moses has uh, led the people out of Egypt and he's brought them to, God has brought them to Mount Sinai. And, and no sooner have they entered into covenant with the Lord that they've broken covenant with the Lord by constructing the, the golden calf. And the Lord in his wrath threatens to destroy Israel and offers to raise up another people out of Moses. And you remember what Moses does. He intercedes on behalf of Israel. 
And he keeps asking for things. And the Lord keeps declining those requests until eventually Moses throws up his hands and essentially says, I don't know what to ask for. Show me your glory. Show me your character. Show me who you are. And then I will know how to pray. And the Lord says, okay, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to show myself to you. I'll cause the backside of my glory to pass by you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord. And in that context, the Lord says, no one can see my face and live. It's also a remarkable request because... Throughout John's gospel, if you were in Sunday school last week, we talked about this briefly. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly identifies as I am. In other words, Jesus identifies with the name of the Lord. So who is this word made flesh? Who is Jesus Christ? He is none other than the God of Israel. He is the Lord, the I am. And so to see him, in a very real sense, is to see the Lord. And remember, though, how how in in Deuteronomy, book of Deuteronomy, in in the second commandment, the, the Lord reiterates that when he spoke to Israel from the mountain, they didn't see any form of God. He makes that very clear. They didn't see any form. They only heard a voice. And even in the New Testament, Paul speaks of believers seeing God God right now in the present, but seeing them with the eyes of faith. Now, how does that happen? How, How do we see God now by faith? And Paul says it's through the hearing of the word. That's why Paul can elsewhere describe his preaching literally as placarding Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul can, Paul can speak of the ministry of the good news, the ministry of the gospel, as a, as a time in which we behold with the eyes of faith the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And we are being transformed by that sight through the hearing of the word from one degree of glory Till another, to another. And so Paul, Paul characterizes the ministry of the word being heard in faith as a kind of seeing of God in his glory in the face of Jesus Christ right now. But what I, the reason I go through all of that is to say, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something else. He, he says he desires that we might be with him And see his glory. This is an echo of something Jesus has already started to allude to earlier in John chapter 14. When he said that he has to go away for now. Return to the Father. And he's going to go there to prepare a place for us. And he says, if I I go away to prepare a place for you. Then that means I will come again for you. So that you can be with me where I am. See, seeing Jesus by faith is is one thing, and it's the means by which we are growing as Christians now. It's the means by which we are becoming more like Jesus. You know, there's all kinds of 
guru stuff out there today about how you can grow in holiness and grow in your sanctification. If you ask the Apostle Paul, how is it that we are being sanctified? Paul's answer is by beholding the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And we do that by hearing the ministry of the gospel through faith. But seeing Jesus by faith in this life is one thing. Seeing seeing Jesus in his personal presence is another thing altogether, isn't it? We we know this intuitively at, at a human level. You know, we we've just it's in the past now, for some of us it might still be a present experience, but not too long ago, many of us were learning how to use Zoom, right? So we could talk to people, so we could stay in touch with one another, so that we could, you know, see each other's faces. But we knew that that wasn't the real deal, right? We, we knew that seeing a face on a screen is not the same thing as being face-to-face with someone. It's what Paul is getting at when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face-to-face. When we will know fully as we are fully known. So what kind of seeing are we talking about here? What what kind of seeing does Jesus desire for us? I think the kind of seeing Jesus is talking about here is, is more than physical. It certainly is that. We're going to see Jesus with our own eyes. But I think we need to go further and say that what Jesus really desires is something that's effective affectionate, relational. There's, there's, there's something here about fellowship and intimacy. Psalm, Psalm 42 is a, is a helpful illustration of what I'm trying to get at here. Remember Psalm 42, the psalmist likens himself to a deer um, panting for streams of water. So you got that imagery in your mind. Here's this this, this deer that's longing for life-giving water. And the psalmist says he's like that. Now his is not a physical thirst. His is a soul thirst. And he understands that it's only God. It's only being in God's presence, in God's house, that will ultimately quench and satisfy his thirst. That's why he asks the question, when will I appear before the Lord? Or as a possible translation of the Hebrew would have it, when will I appear before the face of God? You see, the longings of God's people and relief from the, the toil and the trouble and the sorrows of life east of Eden will only be fully achieved at last when we dwell in the house of the Lord forever, when we live before the face of God and we taste of the goodness of his house and drink from the river of his delights, we will be satisfied with the goodness of God when we are with him where he is. And this is what we're talking about here. So seeing him is more than more than physical, you know, ocular sight. It's about the immediacy of the fellowship that we will one day 
and joy. No, no longer by faith, but by sight. That's how scripture speaks about it. With him, face to face. There we will know fully as we are fully known. There we will imagine it. What is it going to be like to one day truly love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Without the effects of sin anymore corrupting our love for the Lord. And this picture of of the life to come that is set forth for us in scripture is not only knowing fully as we are fully known, not only loving God uh, with our whole heart, but of joy abounding. Joy being full because now we know and love God as we ought to know and love him. This is what we're talking about here. It's what Jesus has in view in this request that he makes. We will be satisfied. Not with, not with things, not with temporary goods, but we might say we will be satisfied with goodness itself. You see, this is, this is not just seeing Jesus as someone who can do good things for us. It's important we understand that. There's a wrong way of viewing Jesus as someone who can give us other good things, and we're idolaters. <laughs> No, he, he is praying that we will not see him merely as a means to an end, but the end of our existence. The purpose for which we were made. The bridegroom about whom we corporately say as his bride, this is my beloved. He is mine and I am his. See, the the best and ultimate thing that Jesus wants to give us, dear friends, is, is not a something. It's not a mere circumstance. It's a someone. It's him. It's himself. And so he prays that we will see him, and in seeing him, our souls will find rest in him. And then secondly, what, what is it about him? Let's go a step further here. What is it about him that Jesus wants us to see? What is it, in other words, about this Jesus that will be the end of our longings, the fulfillment of human desire, the the, the completion of all of our yearnings in life? Jesus desires, above all, that we will see him in his glory as the object of the Father's eternal love. I, uh, some of you know, I, I lived in Lancaster for a brief period of time, about a year and a half. And when I was there, uh, friends and I would often try to go down to Fulton Theater in downtown Lancaster. Now, to get down there, it, it involved a lot of steps. None of us had a big vehicle, so we usually packed in like sardines into my friend's little Hyundai, and uh, made our way downtown, usually made a stop at Prince Street Cafe first, and then made our way to Fulton Theater, found a place to park, got in line to buy tickets, got our tickets, then we had to find our way to our seats, and we're finally seated. What is it that's before us? There's a big curtain before us. And the reason for all of those steps up to that point 
was to see the curtain drawn back so that we could watch what was going to unfold. The reason I share that with you is there's a sense in which in this verse, Jesus is pulling back the curtain a bit and he's saying, this is everything I have worked for. This is the reason for everything that I've done. This is the reason I made you. This is the reason I've provided you with daily bread. This is the reason I've called you to myself and justified you and sanctified you and one day will glorify you. Here it is. Here's where it's all going. Jesus prays that we will see the glory that the Father has given him because he loved him before the foundation of the world. Now, that, that language of before the foundation of the world, it, it, it's drawing on an Old Testament metaphor. An Old Testament metaphor for creation, which describes creation as God building a house to dwell in. If you look at Psalm 104, it, it describes God laying the foundation of this house and stretching out the heavens like a tent. You hear the metaphor used in Isaiah 66 where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. You know, what, what kind of house is this? It's a palace. And at the same time, it's a temple. It's a palace temple that this, this metaphor is, uh, is helping us appreciate. Well, We'll, get to, we'll come back to that here in just a minute. But what Jesus wants to do here is to draw our attention to something that existed before the building of this house. Before the construction of this palace temple. And in other words, before anything else existed, what was there? Jesus says the Father glorified the Son, and the Father glorified the Son because he loved the Son in the Spirit. See, before the foundation of the world, we might say the triune God was supremely and perfectly happy and satisfied in himself. That's what older theologians meant by the language of divine blessedness. God was fully satisfied in himself. God the Father honoring God the Son and God the Spirit because God the Father loves the Son in God the Spirit. And you see, Jesus' glory has been revealed in a number of ways throughout history. The Bible speaks about the glory that is seen in his incarnation. John 1.14 says we we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's certainly a glory revealed even in the humiliation of his crucifixion as the Son of God is lifted up to draw all men to himself. But over and above and beyond the glory that is revealed in Christ's incarnation and Christ's crucifixion, is the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. And he's saying here in this prayer, it is my yearning, it is my longing that those whom you have given me, Heavenly Father, may be with me where I am, that they may see me, see my glory as the one 
eternal Son of God, loved forever by the Father. Now, coming back to this foundation metaphor, it's, it's so fascinating to describe the creation of the world as the building of a house. Think about that with me for a minute. The Old Testament describes the creation of the world as the building of this grand cosmic temple, palace. It, it, it brings to mind, at the, at the very least, that all builders, when they begin building, have a purpose in view, don't they? You don't find somebody who just starts you know, willy-nilly raising a building for, for no reason whatsoever. There's a purpose behind the construction. And this verse, John 17, 24, is giving us a glimpse into the reason for why God created the heavens and the earth. That the eternal blessedness, the eternal happiness, the eternal beatitude that has always and forever existed perfectly in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, might expand and embrace others in that very same happiness, blessedness, and beatitude. You see, the last last thing Jesus prays for in this great high priestly prayer is that all whom the Father has given to the Son will, will come one day to the place where they share the Father's love for the Son and where they together love, uh, experience the love that the Father has for His Son and in sharing in this love are supremely blessed and happy and satisfied by that love. You see, your, your eyes, we read about it in Isaiah 33. Different imagery, but the same idea. Your eyes will behold the beauty of the king. That's what Isaiah 33, 17 tells us. That your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. And friends, Jesus' prayer reveals to us that this is the very desire of the king himself. And it's fascinating that in texts like Isaiah 33 and other passages like Revelation 21 and 22, when the prophets and the apostles are describing the glory of this magnificent and beautiful king, they seem to draw from every facet of creation to describe it. You remember in Isaiah 33 from our reading that the the Lord in his majesty will be a place for us of, of, uh, of broad rivers and streams. Isn't that wonderful? Imagery: The glory of the Lord will be a place of broad rivers and streams. We'll have no need for a lawgiver and judge and king because Jesus himself will be our lawgiver and king. Revelation 21 says that in that eternal city, the new Jerusalem, there will be no sun because the Lord God will be its light and the lamb its lamp. You've got to ask the question, why, why are the prophets and the apostles describing the glory of Christ? Why are they doing that while they draw from so many of these different creaturely images? I think there's two main reasons. I think the one main reason is to, to stress 
the immediacy of the glory when Christ returns. Do you notice what they're saying? There will be no more lawgiver and judge, humanly speak, because Christ himself will be our lawgiver and judge. There will be no more sun because God himself will be our light and the lamb its lamp. There, there will no longer, Revelation tells us, there will no longer be a river, but from the throne of God and the lamb, the, we will have the pure water of life flowing to us from the throne. But friends, these, these images, they not only point to the immediacy of the glory, uh, they also point to the ultimacy of divine glory. When you look around at these things God has created, we've, we've all seen beautiful things in the world. But have you ever been Have you ever been left speechless by the beauty of the works of God's hands? Have you ever stood before something like the the Grand Canyon and simply stood in awe of its beauty and its majesty? Have you ever tasted something so good that you are at a loss for words to describe just how good it is? Have you ever had an experience of such joy and happiness in this life that all you can do actually is laugh because you're so filled with joy. I just watched uh, the, the Lord of the Rings movies with Karis for the first time. And we saw, you know, at the end, I think we all know the Lord of the Rings story. So spoiler alert, I think you all know how the story goes. But you remember at the end when the ring of power is destroyed and, and, and Sam and Frodo are away from Mordor, away from Mount Doom. And they're back together again. And there's just this scene where, where all they're doing is laughing. <laughs> None of them are saying anything. They're just laughing because of what they have experienced. The goodness of seeing evil <laughs> put away. They're left feeling nothing but joy. Friends, all of these, these good experiences that we have in life, tasting the goodness of creation, we need to understand the Bible says They are the fruits of God's vineyard. He created them. He he made them. And they are meant ultimately to draw us back to him. The goodness that we taste and experience and see in, in this life is ultimately meant to lead us to the one who is the source of all good things, who is goodness itself. We were going to sing a a hymn after the message this morning, uh, but Jeff's home with a sick family. But we were going to sing, the sands of time are sinking. And in that hymn, one of the lines is that that, uh, Jesus Christ brings us into his house of wine. He brings vile sinners into his house of wine. One of those, one of those uh, really it's a quote of scripture reminding us that every taste of fine wine in this life is ultimately meant to lead us back to the one who is the source of all good things in this life. These imagery, this imagery used throughout scripture, friends, is meant to show us the, that Jesus Christ himself is the source of all ultimate goodness and glory. 
All that the triune God, therefore, has done in creation. Think about this. All that he has done in providence throughout the history of the world. All that he has done in history, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. All that he is doing in our lives now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And all that he will one day do do to glorify us is ordered to this end. To answer the request of Jesus when he said to the Father, Father, it's my desire that they be with me to see me and to behold my glory as the eternal Son loved forever by the Father. So friends, if you are in a place in life right now where you're asking that question that the psalmist mentions in Psalm 4, is there anything good? Who will show us any good? Remember this morning that the yearning, the longing of your Savior is to give you the supreme good. And it's not something, it's himself. That is our ultimate hope as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks to God for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus into the world full of grace and truth, and that he lived a perfect life, and he died a substitutionary death on the cross to rescue us from sin and futility, and we thank you that he did it all because ultimately he wants us to be where he is, He promises us a a new heavens and a new earth where you will dwell among us and we will gaze upon the beauty of our King and see the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who is loved from before the foundation of the world. And in your grace, you have seen fit to draw us in, to be embraced by that very same love, the love that you have for your people in Christ Jesus. So give us hope and encouragement in the midst of many discouragements in this world and remind us in the days to come that this is our future, that we will be with Jesus and behold our King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.